Hi, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. This week, we're speaking to Elena Perea. She's a psychiatrist in North Carolina. She's a hospital-based physician with about 10 years in practice as an attending. And uh, Wendy met Elena first. So, Wendy, can you tell us how you first met? What was the connection? So, I met Elena through um, this group of really interesting folks. It's a private message group on Facebook, actually. And it is a group of a 1,000 women who are also equestrians. And so we, we blow off steam by riding horses. And um, it's a very, the other interesting thing about the group is that it is a very, very um, supportive, tightly connected group that has taken care of each other through this, through the COVID pandemic, through daily check-ins and that sort of thing. Great. So people are going to ask us uh, why we invited Elena to come and give an episode. Um, and I think the first thing to say is it's because she is one of those physicians who has a real frontline experience. She has experience um, both taking care of patients in the hospital um, and dealing with some of the most challenging problems out there of our healthcare system. And she's also really passionate about both healthcare and about making healthcare better. When, she's the, when she sees the problem, she's not willing to just kind of walk past it. She's going to pick it up and and manipulate it until it, you know, kind of mess with it and try to fix it until it's better. Yeah, there's some, some, some great things she has to say in this, in this episode. I think perhaps exacerbated by the fact that mental health care is a particularly challenging area of chronic underfunding, um, a very vulnerable population, and getting care for patients in a crisis is, um, is very much dependent on uh, how they fit into the financial framework of our current health care system. And I think Elaine is going to ex- elaborate on some of those things as well. Yeah. So it, it was, I'm, I was sorry that you missed this interview as well. She was really fun to talk to. Um, but having said that, there are a couple of quick things that I think we need to um, mention about what she talks about. Um, so one of the things that she talks about is countertransference. And it's a very, that's a very psychiatric term, psychological term. And essentially what it means is it's a short way of saying that something is a powerful reminder of a different experience in, earlier in your life. So um, when she talks about wanting to be a pediatrician and the countertransference, it's, it's about something earlier in her life. And then the other thing she talks about is anaclytic depression which is really feelings of hopelessness or weakness. So one thing we probably should uh, mention before you listen to this episode is that there are a few episodes of colorful language that's uh, simply because Elena really is passionate about this topic, like a lot of us are, and has uh, some really strong feelings about it. And there are also a couple of episodes of um, challenging topics, such as um, mental illness and child abuse. So you might want to be careful about where you listen to this, when you listen to it. Now, one of the things about this episode is that we recorded it uh, a few weeks ago, and obviously it's coming out right in the middle of the third wave of our new pandemic. And so, um, you know, there's some relevance there, Wendy. What it makes really clear to me is that healthcare workers were struggling before the pandemic started. Um, We struggled in the midst of the first surges. and we are just getting worn out. And you can really hear that when you listen to Elena's piece. Um, it is getting really hard for healthcare workers to continue 
keeping up with all of these with these surges. And so as as Thanksgiving comes, um, and this is going to drop right after Thanksgiving, um, as we watch as we watch people travel and worry about what comes next, um, I think we can hear that in Elena's voice as you listen to her. Exactly. Let's have a listen. So, Elena, I'd like to say thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. And um, how about if you introduce yourself? I can do that. Uh, my name's Elena Perea. I am a psychiatrist. I've been practicing psychiatry in the state of North Carolina for many years now. Um, I primarily practice hospital-based psychiatry, which is not spending time on a couch or uh, talking about your mom. I don't do those things. I don't care about those things. That's just I'm a different kind of psychiatrist than, you know, what people see on television. Um, I primarily am seeing people who are in a crisis. Um, about half of my work is in the emergency department and half of my work is in the medical hospital. And I see people whose brains aren't working either because of a medical illness that's causing a behavioral problem or because of a, a mental illness that has become destabilized. And I do a lot of medicine and the intersection of how the mind and the body sort of interact with each other. Yeah, so, you, so you're right at the intersection of biological psychiatry. Exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. So... so um, that it's fascinating, and I think it's an under underappreciated intersection between mind and body, sort of. But um, so, w- I'd like to give people an idea of how how folks got to where they are when clinicians when clinicians are practicing. Um, it's easy to forget that they they had a time before they were doctors, right? And so I'm wondering why did you want to go into medicine in the first place? You know, that's a good question, and I've, you know, you sent the questions to give an idea of what the interview might be like ahead of time, and I have spent a little bit of time thinking about that, Um, and I don't have a real clear answer for you other than it was super early in life that I thought that I wanted a a medical job. Um, Initially, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I, like you, am a horse person, and... um, you know, I really like animals. I like spending time with animals and being outside. But then as I went through um, college, I think, was when I decided that I didn't want to do veterinary medicine, but instead wanted to do human medicine. I thought that it was a good uh, use of my time and my, my skills. I was a sciencey, mathy person who got a Bachelor of Arts in anthropology that had nothing to do with anything, but that's where we are. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it was just something that I thought I wanted from an early age was to be involved in, in caretaking, I think. Yeah. So, so finding a way to, to bring science and, and kind of the, the science piece, the hard science piece and the analytical piece together with that softer, altruistic, caring side. Right. And it's such a trite thing to say that I wanted to help people, but, I, you know, when I 
I think when we all got into this, we all thought we were going to be helpful in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what is, what is your practice actually like at this point? So I, I do a hundred percent of the patients I see are in consultation. Um, I don't see, I don't have any longitudinal patients, although there are some patients that I see so frequently um, and are such recidivists to uh, care that they might as well be my continuity patients. But I I work in a major um, tertiary care center hospital in a moderately sized city in the 10th largest populous, 10th most populous state in the nation. So I see a, you know, a fairly wide variety of people who generally present with some sort of behavioral health disturbance. Um, Like I said, it's about half emergency psychiatry and half um, medicine and psychiatry or or consult liaison psychiatry with uh, patients that are in the medical hospital. And is it, I think all of us, before we go into whatever career, unless we just stumble onto something or get pulled into something, have an idea of what we'll, what our jobs will be like and how we'll function in that job. And I, I wonder if you had a picture of that when you were approaching medical school, when you were in college or as a pre-med. No, um, when I, before I was in medical school and even early in you know, the medical school and the preclinical training, I thought that I wanted to do a different kind of medicine. Um, first, I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. Maybe I would have been a good surgeon, but I didn't get along with surgeons. It's not that I didn't get along with them. I just, I don't think that same way. Um, then I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician because I was a child myself, you know, and you have a lot of countertransference, you know, when you're, when you're a student and uh, it's before you're you know, disciplined enough to recognize that in yourself. Um, but what I kept coming back to was that, um, you know, like on the pediatrics rotation, I was interested in the abuse cases, the kids that were invented for failure to thrive or were having encapresis because they'd been raped or whatever. Those were the cases that I found myself most interested in. So um, when I did my psych rotation, which was relatively late, in my uh, third year, that was when I, you know, found my my home, so to speak. And um, I, I I was so earlier in my career, I was an inpatient doctor taking care of the sickest of the sick um, psychiatric patients with patients with schizophrenia, treatment resistant patients that are having first episodes of major psychiatric illnesses, things like that. And I thought that I would be happy in that um, for my career. And I just just kept coming to this, you know, the the connection of of body health with, with brain health, and, like, it just kept coming back to that. And my mentors... Um, were largely consult liaison psychiatrists, and and I, you know, I I never gave up the fact that I went to medical school. Like I was not super interested in doing psychotherapy myself. I was much more interested in medicines, and my brain just processes the way medications work and the way the body processes medications. Like that just is all that. It's like 
it makes sense to me. And so it was an, a niche that I could fill easily and that challenged me. Um, I never have the same day twice, which is really delightful. So yeah. it, is it where I thought I'd be? Um, probably not at the beginning of medical school, but like going back now, probably seven or eight years, it's where I thought I would be what, from early career. So I guess what I'm, uh, the, the other question I'm asking, I, I guess, is um, when you imagined taking care of your patients, did you imagine what it would be like actually getting patients the care that they need? No, it's so much harder. Um, In what way? You know, we're, we teach we teach people from like from medical school and through their residency training, um, and even into early career. You, know, we have an idea of what ideal care is, and I think that we do a good job of training people to know what you know standard of practice should be. And then you get out there and you're in a community where there is no care. So in North Carolina, for the last 25 years, we've been dismantling the public mental health system. And um, it's so like somebody comes in that doesn't have insurance and uh, because of, you know, they have deinstitutionalized things too, because I, I don't know how much you want me to go into this, but for many years, you know, up until the, I would say the 80s, um, people were kept in mental hospitals against their will for like decades and decades. And then they started to, they had this great idea about not holding people against their will in an institution and, hey, we can take care of most of these people in the community, so let's transition them to outpatient services. And then they took away all the funding for the outpatient services. So the outpatient services also went away, but they had closed all of the beds. So now there's no care. You know, people come into the hospital, and maybe you can get them a bed, maybe you can't, um, if they're having some sort of dangerous crisis. Uh, And then when they're ready to discharge, there's, there's nothing. And it's so hard to get like what you know the patient needs, what, what you've been trained to know that the patient needs. So we're trained to the gold standard. Right. And there's no discussion about what happens when we don't, when we don't have the resources to provide that gold standard. Then where do, we, where do we end up? Exactly. What is it like for you as a, as a physician to go into that situation and and to know that no matter what no matter what idea you have for a treatment plan there's there's a chance that you won't be able to give it to the you won't be able to get that for the patient on my good days i'm heartbroken for the patient on my bad days i'm irritated um and that's a mild word, probably on a, you know, order of magnitude more profane than that, um, that the system is the way that it is. Right. And so what is, it, what is it like for you to go into a larger system that is that reality day after day, week after week? So tired. 
I'm exhausted. I mean, you know, I spent a lifetime, I spent 25 years of formal education learning how to take care of patients, ideally. And rather than being able to do that and see people improve and get the care that they need, um, I am contributing to a wasteful system by providing inadequate care and perpetuating uh, recidivists for people who are partly or not ideally treated. Right. So, so you're seeing the gap that if you could treat people in that gold standard, maybe they wouldn't be coming back into the system over and over again. Correct. And it's, it's so, like, it, it's... Uh, it makes me sad. It, it, you know, all of the sad, glad, mad, you know, <laughs> child psychiatry words and, the, you know, the faces. And I go through, like, all of them, except I don't think I've been happy about, like, where I've sent a patient. Because, you know, the majority of my patients are not resourced. You know, they're indigent and we, we can't get them to private pay um, ideal treatment. And so, like, there there's... You know, when I let somebody go, it's kind of into the abyss, you know, and it's just, it's so frustrating and it really, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah, I I can imagine. And you're not the first person that we've heard that from. I mean, that is, that is a very, very common, um, what, what we hear very commonly from a lot of physicians. I'm exhausted. Um, I, I, I'm. I start questioning why I want to keep fighting the system. So, what you are at what point in your career? Uh, I graduated from medical school in 2006, and I graduated from training in 2000. Oh, geez, ten or eleven? I can't remember. So, you know, I've been in, in 2010 because it's been more than 10 years as of July that I've been in attempting. So. Right. So you, you've been in it to long enough to really have a good sense of the system, but not to be in a position where it's realistic to start even thinking or planning for retirement. Oh, that's correct. I mean, you're, you're planning for kids' college, but maybe not beyond that yet. Well, I have a good financial advisor Thanks, man. We appreciate that. But, like, you know, like, I have to keep working. That's correct. This is not, like, there's not an option. And I still have medical school loans to pay. I went to a great state school. Uh, It was the second least expensive medical school in the country at the time that I went to it. But I still, you know, have loans, a mortgage, and expensive hobbies. And, (laughs) you know, these are all first world problems. But, like, no, I can't quit. I can't walk away. Right. So what do you see as your, as your biggest, cha- the biggest challenges that face you in getting your patients the care that they need? If you could change something, what would it be? Public funding. I mean, I don't health. even have to, yeah, I don't even have to think about that. I, mm-hmm. You know, I, I wish that a psychiatrist could be consulted about public funding for mental health because we need funding for, um, 
substance abuse treatment. We need funding for DBT. We need funding for assertive community treatment uh, teams. And we need we need to freaking expand Medicaid in the state of North Carolina. We need, you know, like the, there is, we have so many high utilizers of services that if we could just take care of them, the cost, like if we would pay to take care of the people that need care, the cost would actually go down. And like that, the, yeah. Yeah, because we go back, we go back to that where if we could take care of people, people closer to the gold standard, right? we would maybe take care of them once, not six or seven or eight or 10 times. Right. And I'm always saying, you know, it costs about $1,500 a month to, to fund assertive community treatment team services. And that's, uh, you know, that, that's services that include a psychiatrist and a nurse and a therapist and up to 40 hours a week of service. They don't get 40 hours a week of service, but they go to patients where they are. They, you know, $1,500 a month. It's $1,500 a day to have a patient in an emergency department or in an inpatient setting. And the, the, the just inability to see how spending money actually saves money has been my just oft-repeated uh, comment about how this goes down. Yeah. And I can imagine that you understand, you understand the financial framework that you're working in, and it's incredibly frustrating for you. And you have a pretty clear picture of what the solutions would be. But I would imagine that a lot of your patients don't, don't have that level of clarity into why they can't get the care that they need. What would be, what would you want your patients to know about what you think, about what you face every day in the challenges of getting their care? I don't know that I want my patients to know the challenges that I face every day. You know, this is... I feel like it's sort of our cross to bear, right? I mean, you've you've been in a similar position. You you know what it is. I mean, um, you know, if your primary care physician told you that you had a, you know, an infection that needed an antibiotic, you would just didn't expect the antibiotic to be provided to you. You you wouldn't want to hear about how they couldn't get it. Like that's it's bullshit. Um, so I don't I don't know that I I necessarily want to share this with the patients. So I think the corollary of that is what you're saying. If patients go into their physician and say and and have an encounter, and the physician looks like you know everything is fine, and they're managing, and their their heads above water, no issues. That may be a facade that we put up to protect our patients from the challenges that we're facing on their behalf. Oh, yeah. And that's a drain in and of itself, right? Um, you know, I think so many physicians adopt this position of learned helplessness where, you know, no matter if you fight for the patients or if you just give up and don't fight, the same bad thing is going to happen. And, um, 
you know, sharing sharing your despair, your you know, what what was that? What do they call it? It was some sort of depression, anaclytic depression, right? What isn't that the the term? Sharing that with the patient is just going to drag them down with you. So you've got to like, even if you're experiencing that in your your internal um, being, I think that you have to try to tell the patients, we know how to treat this. Because we do. We do know how to treat it, right? Like, we know how to treat it. That's not the issue. Right. Patient with, with borderline personality comes in. You know that they, they need DBT. And you say, we can, we can fix this, right? Like, you get two years of DBT and you're good about going to the therapy and, you know, more than half of the patients no longer meet criteria for DBT, for uh, borderline personality disorder anymore. In longitudinal studies, it's a lasting cure. Right. We can't cure anything in psychiatry, but we can cure this. Good luck finding a fucking DBT group. Right. So when you're in that position and you're protecting your patient, knowing that, that your, your hands are tied, what do you do with that? Wait for Dr. Wendy Dean to call you to be on her podcast on International Podcast Day. <laughs> well, that's a great plan, but, you know, that's not going to come around again until next year. <laughs> well, we can talk about it then, too. No, I mean, I don't know. Like, this is, this is the problem, right? So this leads to burnout, right? So we've talked about how all of these things, knowing what to do, being unable to do them, um, that's all of the moral injury, right? Like, you right. you know what's right. You know what you should be doing. You know that the patient that's injecting heroin every day should get on Suboxone. You also know that that patient can't afford $200 a week, and the federal funding for the Suboxone grant ran out July 2nd when the, you know, fiscal year starts July 1st. You know all of that. And so what do you do? You get burnt out. You get tired. You get bitter. You hate your job. And that's a, that's a battle that we have to fight. Do you think it would get better if we could engage others to fight with us? Who do you engage? The politicians? I don't know if you watched the debacle last night. I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, unless there's some, like unknown sugar daddy out there waiting to fund these, you know, endless needs, I, 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 I don't know who to engage. I, 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 I wish fervently that we had somebody else to fight for our patients with us. We're looking. Yeah, I know, and that's, that's why I'm here, right? Right. Because somebody has to hear that we are crying for assistance and um, that we're getting tired. Right. And I think if there's any silver lining in COVID, and I think that silver lining is pretty darn thin, it may be, it may be that it has opened up for us that window for other people to see that this is not this is this is not an easy job. This is this is one of the hardest jobs that there is. And we're doing it because that's what we believe in. 
but we're getting tired. Yeah, I agree with you. I've been hoping that somebody would see that, you know, the physicians of this country are spread pretty thin um, and that, you know, some of us are feeling underwater and COVID has just been that extra something, you know? Right. Hey, that it's special something. More. So, so, <laughs> right. The Rona. Um, you know, it was, it was bad before coronavirus. And I'm not even, yes, I, I see patients with coronavirus in my job as a consult liaison psychiatrist. I put on all of the crap and go into the rooms and am fit tested so that I, you know, have a special N95 size and make that I wear and all of that. But, like, think about, think about those ICU physicians in, in New York who took care of those thousands upon thousands of patients who survived but now those patients are walking around with cardiomyopathies and there's no, you know, they're uninsured because they lost their job because they were in the hospital for 45 days. Like, it, it's not, psychiatry is its own world, but we're part of the bigger picture as well. And I think that I am speaking to my frustrations specifically, but I am well aware that it's a, a medicine-wide, specifically physician-wide problem. Right. I mean, I think... One of the one of the things you really touched on was that we were already spread thin. Right. Staff, stuff, space were all pared down to the bone before COVID hit. That was that was really the financial framework, the financial model, um, and to make healthcare as efficient as possible. And yet, that leaves no room for when a crisis happens. There's no slack in the system. There's no space. There's no extra. There's no extra staff person to come in and spell you when you've been on for 15 hours. Right. Or 24 hours. You don't get a sick day because that's not built into the schedule. You, right. you don't get to, to take time off because that, you know, you're supposed to take time off when you're not on service, which is fine. Um, but, you know, there's, there's not like paid vacation. There's not paid sick leave. You just need to make that work up. And so to then, like, take uh, somebody who took 25 years to train out of the equation because they now have coronavirus or whatever, have had a baby, you know, even, like, even mundane things, it just, it, it, it just burdens the rest of your colleagues, too. Right. So it sounds like, from your perspective, one of the best things that we can do is to work toward a different financial framework of healthcare that is better for patients and better for more sustainable for clinicians. Yes. Yes. I agree. Well, this has been a really great conversation. And um, so let's see, it's, no, it's September 30th. So uh, international podcast day next year. Yes. We'll do it again. And maybe I'll be singing the praises of, you know, some sugar daddy who's going to fund all of my uh, public mental health things at that point. That's right. We can, we'll go out and we'll shake the trees and see if we can bring some of that in. I love it. All right. Well, so this has been really great. Um, and I'm sure we'll be talking again. I think I only used the F word one time. Yeah, good job. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> all right. Good. All right. 
Thanks, Wendy. Thanks for being here. It was great. Sure. Uh, Wendy, one of the things that I thought uh, comes up time and time again when we talk to physicians on the front lines is this idea that here's somebody who spent 25 years or so of formal education specifically about how to take care of patients in the ideal way, but they feel that rather than being able to do that, they're contributing to a wasteful system of inadequate care and perpetuating sort of sort of non-ideal treatment. Yeah, and, and what comes across for me so much is that Elena sounded exhausted and incredibly frustrated and doesn't know where to turn. And there's all this conflict about, you know, her hands are tied. She she knows what they need, and, and it's incredibly frustrating that she can't get it for them. But the other piece that really struck me, which I don't think we hear enough about, is her powerful insistence that she wants to protect her patients from the challenges of the system. And so she she clearly described carrying all of that weight for her patients while trying to decide on the best plan of care. And I think we, it would really be great for people to keep that in mind as we think about how clinicians are doing in the context of healthcare and then with the overlay of the pandemic on top of that, which makes things even worse. Yeah, you know, it's interviews like this that do leave me a little bit optimistic about where we're headed because frankly, there are people like Elena out there who are really passionate about this and really passionate about patient care. And, and that's an essential part of bringing about any of these changes. And because there are some really clear opportunities here, we really have a problem. And we have some ways of dealing with this, valuing our patients and valuing our clinicians to try and get us to the point where we can make these changes. I want to thank everybody for joining us here on Moral Matters. And you can continue the conversation by visiting our website at fixmoralinjury.org. Looking us up on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare and visiting us on Instagram at Moral Injury. Or on Twitter at WDMD and Simon Talbot, MD. If you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe to upcoming episodes, rate us online and review us so that it's easier for others to find us. And join us next time when we're going to talk to Michael Fedor, who used his organizing background to advocate for his wife during a really critical healthcare crisis. Until then, be well. <laughs>